If you missed the introduction, my name is Mike. I'm the pastor here at Christ Church Halifax. A special welcome to you if you're visiting with us this Christmas Eve. We hope that you uh, enjoy your time with us, that you get to have uh, a unique encounter with the living God through his word. And it's to his word now we turn our attention. So if you go to the back middle portion of your worship guide, uh, you'll find the scripture that we'll be uh, spending our time in for the rest of our, um, our, after our morning together. Uh, we've been going through, if you're just joining us, we've been going through a, a, a four-part sermon series that's finishing this week uh, on the good news of Christ's second advent. This is the season of Advent, the weeks leading up into Christmas. The word Advent, it comes from a Latin word which means coming or arrival. And so this is the season where the church has celebrated the coming or the arrival of Jesus. Now most of the time when we think of Advent, we just think about Christmas. Jesus's first advent, his first arrival. Uh, this is the Christmas story. It's Jesus. God has come to dwell with us. Uh, we, and we love this story. This is good news of great joy for all the people. But listen, Christ's second advent is a good news story as well. For, for, for centuries, the church has taken the advent series, not just, or the advent time, not only to look forward and remember Christ's first advent, but to look with joy to his second advent. That is the day when Christ will come again. It's the day when the bridegroom comes to bring us to the wedding feast. It's the day when the master finally comes home and we get to enter into his joy. In this parable, it's the story when a king returns and welcomes his people into the kingdom that's been prepared for them. We've been looking at Matthew chapter 24 and 25, a section of scripture that's known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, Here, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his second arrival, his second advent, using a, a variety of parables and images. Jesus wants that day, which is still in the future, to be a day of great joy for all people. And so here, in the text we're looking at this morning, he tells them, he tells you how to be ready for his second advent. Advent. Let me turn your attention again to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Uh, We'll read the first portion, verses 1 through 3, just to set the, the context of what Jesus is speaking about. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And then from Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty 
and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Our Father, this is another sober word from your mouth on the lips of your infinitely loving and infinitely wise Son, Jesus. We've heard how Christ's first and second advent is good news of great joy to the world, and yet as we read this text, the fear of judgment rests on many of us. Father, would you awaken us now to our desperate need for your grace? Would we hear these words as coming from the Savior of mankind, one who has come for this very purpose, to rescue and redeem a lost people? Would these words of warning be too for us, words of everlasting hope? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In Charlie Brown's Christmas, Charlie undertakes the search for the true meaning of Christmas. When he asks people what the meaning of Christmas is, he's told it's about presents, it's about parties, it's about decorations and trees and lights and get-togethers. And if you know Charlie Brown at all from the cartoons, you know that he's got an unusual amount of social anxiety and existential angst uh, for an adult, let alone for a little kid. The people who are around Charlie, they just kind of blissfully go through life without asking any kind of deep questions. For them... The presents, the people, parties, and the food, the general sentimentality of Christmas time, that's enough to get through the season. That's kind of all they're looking for. They don't want to know the true meaning of Christmas, if there is one to be found at all. And so Charlie, he's left hanging. He's left wondering, does anyone know the true meaning of Christmas? The second advent of Jesus explains to us the true meaning of Christmas. Without this parable, and parables like it, without understanding the meaning of Christ's second coming, what it will entail, what it means for the world, what it means for us as individuals, uh, for people who are Christians, for people who aren't, we all run the risk of overly sentiment, uh, sentimentalizing Christmas, of, of missing its true meaning. Matthew 25 describes the second advent of Jesus that it'll be like this. It will be like when a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Let's break this parable down into three parts, okay? The coming separation, the one who will separate, and the standard for separation, 
Okay, that's how we'll break down our time this morning. The coming separation, the one who will separate, and the standard for separation. So first, part one, the coming separation. In verse 31, you could look at it in your text, the Son of Man, that is the title that Jesus gives of himself most commonly, he will one day come in glory. He will come with his angels. And on that day, he will sit on a throne. A throne is a symbol of rule, of authority, of power. And before him, he will gather all the nations. That is, all people everywhere who have ever lived. So, listen, every man and every woman and every child, from all corners of the world, the rich and the poor, the powerful and the weak, educated and uneducated, Ancient people and modern people, people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every single person is here. Not one is missing. This crowd, therefore, includes you. It will include me. No one gets out of this final gathering before Jesus. There's no opt-out option. There's no calling in sick or refusing to show up. No one will avoid this coming, uh, this coming separation. Look at verses 32 and 33. Jesus then, after he gathers, will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I want you to hear this point with clarity. There's no third option here. Just left or right. And, and so at this point, this is just an early wake-up call for us as we look at this parable. Jesus is saying, at the second advent, he will make a distinct separation among every person who's ever lived. Every person you and I know, including us, there will be only one of two possible outcomes. To some people, Christ, the ruling king, will say, look at verse 34, Come. You who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. But to others, he'll say, look at verse 41, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. When Jesus speaks on that day, there is only one of two things that he'll say, come or depart, sheep or goat, left all right, now, you and I don't like this. Right? Th this is too limiting. This is a little scary, perhaps. We like having our options. And maybe you're thinking, look, I, like, I'm, I'm no saint. <laughs> I'm not really too interested in all of this Christian stuff, but I certainly don't deserve hell or whatever Jesus is describing here. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He's a preacher from the middle of the 19th century. He preached a sermon on this text about 150 years ago to his church. And he, I'm sure, anticipated this same response from many of the people who were gathered before him back then. He said this. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but I know there are some of you here who dare not say they believe in Jesus. You come to church sometimes, you know, you're visiting here this morning, and you don't pretend that you're really godly or even a Christian, but while you know you're not godly, you would not like to be put down among the ungodly in this parable. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Yet I pray you to remember that God describes that there are but two books, and in one or the other, your name must stand recorded by the hand of God, for there is no third book. There are in this world nowhere any other sort of people beside those who are dead in sin and those who are 
alive unto God. There is no state in between. A man either lives or is dead. You cannot find a neutral state. People who are in a coma or asleep, they are living, not dead. So too, there's no state between being a Christian or not a Christian. No state between being forgiven of your sins or still being in them. No state between dwelling in darkness and being brought into marvelous light. This morning, you are either in the way to heaven or on the road to hell. One of two possible outcomes on that day. That's what's promised to each person. No middle way. Where are you this morning? Where are those that you love? This parable for Christmas Eve sermon, it has some extremely sharp edges, but we can't avoid it. We, we will actually misunderstand the meaning of Christmas itself if we don't look at this. Either you are on the way to heaven, awaiting Jesus' call to come to him, or you're on the road to hell, awaiting the fearful words, depart from me. There's no other option, friend. No other words that you'll hear. This coming separation, it may sound harsh, and that's why it's important in part two, we must know the one who will separate. Who is the one who will make this separation? I, I often hear people expressing something along the lines of, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. I, I like the spirituality of Jesus, but not Christianity. Or, I don't like Christians so much. I find that they're unloving, and they're often foolish and hypocritical and judgy. But Jesus, what a picture of, of love, of wisdom, uh, of non-judgment and welcome. But here in this story, we find Jesus, the one who is indeed full of love and wisdom and welcome. We find he is the one sitting on the judgment throne. He is the one who will separate. Now, it might be difficult for us to reconcile for most people how somebody can be wholly loving, wholly welcoming, and yet also be the judge. But it's important to look then at the character of the one who sits on the throne. This is Jesus. Jesus who loves the world, loves its people. This is the Christmas story, right? This is why Christmas is such joy, because it celebrates that infinite love has come down. One pastor put it this way, Christmas is the celebration of God opening the curtains and exposing to mankind the darkness that they were living in. He sent his son to be the light in order to show us how to truly be human. Since his first advent, since Christmas, we may now live in the day and not in the dark. This is what love is. We were living in moral and spiritual darkness, hating God, hating each other. And so God, because of his great love for us, sent his son, Jesus. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That's what the prophet Isaiah says. But listen, not everyone receives this kind of love. They're not interested in this kind of love. Because this kind of love is light. And some people prefer darkness. But if they do, if on the last day described here, Christ tell them, tells them to depart into that darkness forever, it won't be because of a lack of love from God, but despite it. Listen to what Spurgeon says again. Christ, full of infinite love, would he destroy a sinner unless it must be? Spurgeon says, when I read the newspapers about a judge who condemned a man to death, 
I'm moved when I read the report that the judge's voice faltered, and he was evidently unable to suppress his emotions as he uttered the sentence of death. But no judge on earth has such compassion on his fellow man as Jesus has for sinners. And when it comes to this, and he, that Jesus says, I must do it, I must condemn you, then sinner, it must be so indeed. You will have to say, on that day, if you are counted among the goats, I was condemned by the most loving judge that ever sat upon a judgment seat. The Christ that lifted, the Christ that died for us and for our salvation, lifted his pierced hand at the very moment when he said, depart, ye cursed. Listen to this. This is important to know. No one on that day will say that judgment was not correct. That person should have gone right, not left. No one will say God didn't do enough to reach me or, or Christ was unloving to send that person away. Listen, the one who will separate is Jesus, full of infinite love, full of infinite wisdom. Christ who came to bring light to our darkness. And yet for many, we prefer the darkness to the light. Will you this morning hold on to him? Will you trust him wholly and entirely? He came to bring light to your darkness. He entered into a world of sin and struggle and pain for you, and he's promised to come again. So again, to understand this parable, to understand the meaning of Christmas, you have to know, first, the coming separation, second, the one who will separate, and third, and importantly, the standard for separation. The story features two sets of people, the sheep and the goats, being separated by a particular standard. I don't know if you picked out what it was, and it is this. Their loving service to Jesus, right? That is the standard for separation. Their loving service to Jesus, whether it's presence or it's absence. Look at verse 35 and pay attention to what Jesus is saying. He tells the sheep, come to me, inherit this kingdom. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the sheep are puzzled. They never saw Jesus. They never, to their knowledge, ever did such things to him. And in verse 40, the king answers them and says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. In the scriptures, there is particular love Christians are commanded to show those who are in the church, to, to show to fellow Christians. It, it, this reference in verse 40 that Jesus says, the least of these my brothers, it has a particular people in mind. This is an expression which refers to Jesus' disciples, both men and women, not the poor in general, but those in the church. Now, of course, Christians are meant to show charity and kindness to all people, but listen to how Paul puts this in Galatians chapter 6. He writes to the church saying, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Why this emphasis? Why this special love and service to Christians, especially poor, needy Christians? Because of what we see here and in other places, Jesus himself identifies himself with his people. Jesus closely identifies himself with his own people, with the church. 
The way we do or do not love and serve other Christians reveals something about our relationship with Christ himself, whether we've received him or rejected him. So, for example, in the book of Acts, Saul, who's a character who went around arresting and imprisoning Christians, uh, condemning them to death, when he has a vision of Jesus, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus identifies with his people. To persecute them is to persecute Christ himself. To love and serve them is to love and serve Jesus himself. Again, I often hear people saying, I love Jesus, but not other Christians. I like Jesus, but not the church. And Jesus responds here very clearly, if you don't love and serve other Christians, if you don't love the church, you don't love me. Because Jesus identifies with his people. So listen, this parable is not a parable about generalized charity. As good as that might be, the standard for separation given here in Matthew 25 is our loving service to Jesus. Listen, I can't, I can't let us miss this. I know it's Christmas Eve and there's a temptation to not be too heavy. But if we miss this warning that's embedded in this parable, we're really missing much of the punch of the parable. This parable carries a, a terrible and dire warning to Christians in particular. All of these parables have been parables to prepare for the Lord's coming, to be ready. And it's the burden of this text, too, that you would be ready when Christ returns. If you call yourself a Christian this morning, beware of simply saying or believing, I'm in the church. I've been baptized. I haven't killed anybody. And so I'm good. It ultimately doesn't matter how I live my life daily whether I love and serve others. Christ's advent is not something I, I need to be ready for. That's for other people, people who are outside of the church. It doesn't matter if I love and serve the poor and needy in the church or in the world. It's, it's, it's all grace, right? It's all faith. It's not by works, right? Listen, this is, this is a common religious cover that many Christians try to use as they make excuses for their pet sins so that they can continue a life of apathy, indifference, greed, and laziness, while brothers and sisters in Christ suffer and are in need. They don't lift a finger to serve others, and they cover it with God's grace. In the Middle East, sheep and goats look very similar, all right? If you have in your minds sheep and goats being like big, fluffy, uh, white sheep and scrawny dark goats on the other that's misunderstanding this picture it would actually take an, a very trained eye the eye of a shepherd to accurately separ separate the sheep from the goats you and I probably couldn't tell the difference in a mixed herd and on that day when Christ returns it's not your words that count it's not your baptism or your time spent volunteering at church or on Sunday morning uh, attending worship to an untrained eye, you look good. You look like a sheep, but the shepherd knows who the sheep are and who the goats are. Some people who, who everyone thought looked like a genuine Christian will, reveal, will be revealed on that day to not be. People who profess love for Christ with their lips will be shown to have denied and rejected Jesus by their actions. Now, we have to be cautious here because this parable, of course, could be read 
as an insistence that the way you and I get to heaven ultimately is by doing more and better deeds. This is actually what every religion says. If you're visiting us here this morning, you're like, this sounds like a very religious sermon. And this is the the theme, the melody line in most world religions. If you do enough good things, give enough money away, God will reward you with heaven. The way into heaven is a ladder of good deeds. People who believe this, they either live in one or two ways. Either they leave hectic, frazzled, guilt-ridden lives. How much good is good enough? I better do a little bit more today so I can make that cutoff. Or they live proud and self-confident lives. You know, I, I gave 20 bucks to the church. I retweeted, I reposted that, you know, that charitable thing. And so I'm good. Now God owes me. This might be religion, but friends, it's not Christianity. Religion says God will love us if we love others. But Christianity says we love because God first loved us. When Christ came in his first advent, he didn't come for selfless, good, and loving people. He came for bad people. He came for selfish people. He came for people who didn't love others, who were only interested in themselves. He didn't come for full people. He came for empty people. Not for people rich in good deeds, but people who had dug themselves into a hole so deep that they couldn't find their way out. And so at the second advent, we cannot rely on our good deeds That will never commend ourselves to Christ. Indeed, what we're called to do is to believe and rest on Jesus' love, which was poured out on us in the first advent. But this is a love that changes us. Listen to what 1 John says. I think Alistair read it for us. We love because Christ first loved us. Christ's love that rests on us, that we receive in the first advent, gives power to us to love others. This is what our hope needs to be on that day of the second advent, to hear Jesus look at us and say, yes, you fed the hungry because you first fed on me the very bread from heaven. Yes, well done. You gave drink to the thirsty because you first drank deeply from me, the fountain of living water. Yes, you welcome the stranger because the love that I gave you first welcomed you. Yes, you clothed the naked, but it was because my infinite love first clothed you. Yes, well done. You visited the sick because first my wounds made you whole. Yes, you visited those in prison, not because you thought it would earn some reward for you or you were trying to climb your way into heaven, but because on the cross my free grace first visited you and set you free from the prison of sin and death. you know the Charlie Brown special, you know it ends with Charlie in a full-blown panic. He's screaming, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Without this parable, as uncomfortable as it might feel to some of us, without a proper understanding of what the second advent will bring, we run the risk of viewing Christmas through a merely sentimental lens, through the things that Charlie's offered, but offer no real lasting hope. Presents, parties, food, and people. Here today, gone tomorrow. Charlie's looking for something more, something far deeper, something we all long for too. He's looking for a lasting kingdom, for the life and joy that death, disease, robbers, bad Christmas parties, broken relationships can't take away. Friends, you were made by God, and so you are made for God. No one else, nothing else will satisfy 
And because of this, the desire of our hearts is to one day hear the king look at us and say, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. That is what Christmas is about. So how can we be confident we'll hear that on one day and not the feared words depart? If you want to be confident on that day, friends, you must look beyond yourself and beyond your good deeds. You must look to the one who came. We're to believe the good news that Charlie's friend Linus said. He's quoting from Luke's gospel saying, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Listen, before we love others, Christ first loved us. Before we love and serve others, we must receive the love and service of Jesus. We must first, before we give anything to the needs of the hungry, have our own hunger satisfied, have our own nakedness covered, to be set free from our own sin in him. That's what Christmas is all about. Let's pray. Our Father... At Christmas, where we often fill our arms with so many things, we pray that there would be a unique kind of emptiness that is now filled with Jesus. Lord, we admit that we often leave this season wanting more, seeking a lasting joy and peace. And so, Lord, would you direct our gaze now by your Spirit to your Son, who was sent for that very purpose. Lord, would you, would you satisfy us? with your power and your presence. Lord, we see the needs in our church, the needs in this world, and we know that this even is a faint echo of the desperate need and longing we have for you to return to make all things right. And so we say with the church, come, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, thank you for the promise of Christmas, the hope that it brings. Would we look with great joy to the day where we can hear you say to us, come, you blessed by my Father. And we pray all these things using the words that the Lord taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. You can turn to it in your guide as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.